is Pulling the Strings, a podcast series about coercive control brought to you by the Violence, Abuse and Mental Health Network and hosted by me, Dr. Kitty Saunders, me, Angelique Court, and me, Dr. Charlie Pepitas. In this series, we, your three hosts, will be talking to academic experts, authors, practitioners, and coercive control survivors. We'll be holding critical conversations to improve understanding, break down taboos, and expose the true extent of coercive control. episode we're going to take a closer look at the link between technological abuse and coercive control. So we'll be exploring how technology can be used as both a tool to perpetrate coercive control and also as a resource for survivors of abuse to seek help and access support. Joining us today for our conversation about tech-facilitated abuse is Dr. Leonie Tanser from University College London. Leonie, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself and your work in this area? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I've been working on the intersection of coercive control and technology since 2018. We are running a research lab at UCL called Genuine Tech, which originally started as Genuine IoT, so smart internet connected devices. And we look at the intersection points between tech and domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and have since studied several aspects around this from stalkable spyware that is being installed on victim survivors' phones up till how smart internet connected devices are being uh, misused by perpetrators to new advanced methods like natural language processing, how this can be used to analyze data. Thanks so much, Leonie. We hope that we're going to hear a bit more about all your insights throughout this episode. But we wanted to start off by thinking about what exactly technological abuse is. And I suppose that its most basic form, tech abuse is a form of controlling behavior that involves technology as a means to coerce, stalk or harass another person. So what kind of tech are we talking about that's being used? Probably we're talking about things that are connected to the internet. So internet connected devices like laptops, tablets, smartphones, but there's other things as well, things like home assistants, things like Alexas, and then even home security systems, right? And all of those things which we think about in terms of the Internet of Things. And while these connected devices offer many potential benefits, they can also be used as a tool to perpetrate abuse. Leonie, what other things should we be thinking about when it comes to tech abuse and coercive control? I think the points you touched upon are already very substantial, but I think the the core dimensions that we have observed in our research is the fact that it's all encompassing. It's the remote control aspect as much as the omnipresence of these devices, as well as the perpetrator that makes the functionalities and features that many of these smart internet connected devices offer so like fearful for people. The really important dimension is also that like a lot of people both underestimate and overestimate the capabilities of these devices at this moment of time. My best example I always give is when I took uh, the tube down uh, in London and, uh, you know, you have 
Oral-B, a toothbrush, you know, being advertised as having massive AI capabilities, when in many ways, it's just a Bluetooth connected device. So that puts in the average consumer's perspective, like that these new smart devices are so advanced and so capable. And in a primarily heterosexual relationship, it is very often that the man uh, is in charge of the purchasing of the maintenance of the setting up and often also the legal account of all of these devices. And so especially in domestic abuse cases that is a very gendered phenomena this can then like lead to the fact that perpetrators have far more control not just over the victims and survivors but also the devices which then again impacts victims and survivors it's a vicious circle in this regard i think that's a really interesting point i think highlighting how omnipresent technology is in our lives and how much we've brought that into our spaces it's just it's just ripe ground for these issues to perpetuate and worsen and for people to find new ways of perpetrating coercive control. And there's a range of ways that people can do that. And Anjali is going to tell us a bit about the first ever conviction in the UK for stalking using a smart home device. Yes. Yeah, so this is the trial of Ross Cairns in 2018, which, as Kitty said, marked the first ever conviction in the UK for stalking using a smart home device. There's a bunch of useful summaries in different newspaper articles about this case which we're using and can link in the show notes below. It starts with Ross and his wife at the time, Catherine, who had been married for 16 years and had two daughters together. During their marriage, their household was fitted with an Elan smart home system, which allowed them to control the home's lighting, central heating and security alarm using an iPad tablet mounted on their kitchen wall, as well as an app downloaded onto their mobile phones. Although both used the system, Ross was the administrator of the account. When the pair separated, Ross moved to his mother's house while Catherine remained in their marital home. The two were initially amicable, and one day she invited Ross over to help fix her fish tank and look at her security system. After handing him her phone, he read messages from a man Catherine had been dating and became angry. After leaving, Catherine invited her mother over, where she told her that she no longer loved Ross. The next thing she knew, Ross was downstairs repeating the conversation she had just had with her mother in their kitchen, and he became aggressive. Unbeknownst to her, Ross had been spying on Catherine by remotely logging into the iPad in their kitchen using the app on his phone. This allowed him to access the tablet's camera and microphone, which he used to listen to her private conversations undetected. After discovering this, Catherine called an IT engineer to change the password on their smart home system. However, he was still able to log in remotely. A spokesperson for Elan said that Ross appeared to have used the system as normal, but hadn't informed Catherine of exactly how it worked and that the password was likely changed only for the security system and not for the overriding administrator account. Ross had also hacked into Catherine's Facebook account and her account on the dating app Bumble, where he sent obscene messages to men she had been talking to and posted a sexually explicit photo on her profile. So I think Catherine's story is really terrifying, particularly because it highlights so many ways that technology can be weaponized to perpetrate coercive control. It's about spying, harassment, gaslighting, impersonating the victim, all of these things wound up. And I want to circle back to something Leonie said just now when she was speaking about the, the omnipresence of these devices. It really is very difficult, I think, to live in the modern world without any of these devices. And as we move through time, it seems like more and more things are devices that can 
somehow be hacked into or used in a malicious way against us, which, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You can't live without these, but you also can't live with them. It's a really kind of frightening reality of our current modern day setup. I mean, even if you wanted to live without them, I think about all of our jobs, they require us to have a laptop. Many jobs require you to have a phone. It's really difficult to remove those things from your environment. But if you get to a situation where those are being used against you and you need to remove them, actually that has a massive knock-on impact for the rest of your life. Can you still go to work? Can you still access your email address? Can you still contact your friends and your family? You're sort of entrapped in this technological nightmare. And one of the other things I was thinking about while listening to Catherine's story, but also to Leonie at the beginning, was that Ross had a greater knowledge of how this technology worked and had the control over how it was operated and exploited the fact that she wasn't as familiar with that system, which allowed him to then access it in ways that she thought she had stopped him from from doing. And I think that's an equally frightening situation for anybody who has a partner who wants to trust that they're going to set something up in a way that benefits you both and keeps you both safe, but actually that that trust can be broken and used against you, even on something as seemingly safe as just a kind of smart home system that makes sure that you're not being burgled in your mind, but actually it's listening to your conversations. Exactly. And I think it opens up the question on how we build awareness and education, not just around the dangers of technology, but also how to use it in a way that can facilitate safety through understanding how your technology works. Leonie, did you have any other thoughts on how this case might be emblematic of some of the more common problems found in other instances of tech abuse? Yeah, I think the two points I want to make and that raise questions for me is A, what is normal in our society nowadays? And also, what is fair? And to address the first question around what is normal, many of the functionalities that um, perpetrators like Ross are in this story and, and, and this experience are misusing are functionalities that the average consumer wants and pays for. And I think that was also the response that the manufacturer basically in this context gave, which is there was no misuse of the devices. There was no hacking. There was nothing like done that could prosecute Ross on a technical level. What they were doing is using the features that people should consent to use such in a family household. And what we see in our research at UCL is that there's a slippery slope between what perhaps I think is okay and my partner can and should do, whereas what we see, for example, also younger generation thinking and growing up with is okay and should they, they are comfortable doing. Like, is it okay for my partner to know my password? Is it okay for my partner to pick up my phone and check my messages if we've consented to that even? Is it okay for me to share my geolocation data when I'm in an Uber and driving somewhere? And should it be okay for my partner to request that? Um, while some of you may say, no, it's not, what we're observing is that many people actually agree to that and consent to that. And of course, it boils down to informed consent, people being able to make an, a decision and are not coerced and controlled to do so. 
Nevertheless, I wonder sometimes, you know, you may feel comfortable doing that in the first stages of your relationship and things then start to get a bit sour and then like you're no longer feeling like comfortable just revoking that access. And I feel like we need to have as a society a conversation about this. And I think we don't. And the second point around what is fair. So I think what we observe and I think I've said earlier is that like these omnipresence, this exacerbation and reach of the perpetrator is something that entraps people. And increasingly, they're being asked to basically go offline, as Kitty says. But like, it's not something that we can ask from victims and survivors to do. It's a requirement. We need it increasingly for insurance purposes. We need it not just for employment. We 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 are basically sold when we buy an insurance, all these smart devices to install them. But again, like nobody asks then like, who's the account holder who sets that up? And I, I feel like, uh, it's not really fair of us to both ask victims and survivors to remove themselves from the, this digital environment that we are all love and want to engage with. And rather we should look at like what we can do on a perpetrator side to stop this action to take place, but also on a technical side, what we can do to prohibit this from happening. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting what you said at the beginning, Leonie, where you mentioned that these problems arise because the technology is actually being used in the way that it's designed to be used, but just by people with nefarious intent. And it made me think of that story recently where two women sued Apple because AirTags had been planted in their car and in their child's backpack, which made it easier for them to be stalked and harassed. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on whether it's the job of these tech companies to be more trauma-informed in the design of their products. Undoubtedly, yes, uh, yes to that. Um, I, but, but I also want to stress one important thing, and that's going to be super unsatisfying, but technologically facilitated domestic abuse or coercion and control is not just a technical problem. It's a societal problem. And, and currently we try to fix perhaps the tech. Actually, I think like we're not, but, but I think we should. And I argue for that, but inherently, perpetrators of domestic abuse, of intimate partner violence, of stalking, coercion and control will find any mean to enforce power and control. And, and when, you know, even if tech is not their means to do this, you know, previously it was the, the phone, like the landline. Now it's the smartphone, but before that it was something else. The problem itself is societal and it will not just be fixed with a technical solution, which I think a lot of corporation try also to do there's not one silver bullet to to fix this and and while i absolutely urge manufacturers to think about domestic abuse intimate partner violence vulnerable groups and communities which can be so many you know that that's not just domestic abuse victims it's refugees migrants people that have english not as first language or who are out of the kind of like conventional system so to say and what the implications of the functionalities, the systems, the services that they offer are. And of course, that's not the central on their mind because there are commercial entities where the main factor is, will that be making profit? And to a certain extent, I'm asking here basically to change the system and go away from capitalism, but that's not going to happen. That's why the carrot and stick approach is needed, where policy officials need to basically enforce behaviors and practices. And I see some developments here, but I certainly would, would like to see the stick being used a bit stronger sometimes. What you're saying is really interesting, Leonie. And I guess there's a question for me about the scale. What is the scale of tech 
facilitated abuse. And we know that it's becoming increasingly more common. We've got some stats from 2019 from the charity Refuge that 72% of women accessing their services were subject to tech-facilitated abuse. But I guess what you're saying is, well, the tech is not itself the issue. It's how the tech is being used. But I think if the, the scale is so big and we aren't using things like letters or the landline anymore, and there is the opportunity for the makers of this tech to build in safeguards, is that not something we should be thinking about? If, if I were one of those big manufacturers, what I would actually respond to is, well, actually, it's not that simple either because we're faced here with a dual use situation. So it can be used for good and for bad, just like a knife historically, that is the example given, can be used for good and for bad. It's very simplified here. But I mean, there are definitely things that could be done and implemented quite quickly that would improve the situation. I would say conventional tech that has been longer on our radar, like, you know, Dropbox, Gmail, email, all of that, have having over the years learned a few lessons, such as sending us reminders that, you know, you are still connected to this or on this address, on this date at that time, this IP address logged into your, your email address, all of that. We don't have that currently with many of the smart systems. They're also produced by manufacturers that historically had nothing to do with software, but rather were, you know, producing washing machines, physical things, and that were dealing with product safety, not product security. And my go-to example I have is safety and security are two different things. From a safety perspective, the door in your room should always be open because if there's a fire, you want to run out. From a security perspective, you want it always closed because you don't know who's coming in. And, you know, there's certain elements then where these principles clash with each other. As technical standards developing, I think we need to figure out like a way to make them go together. It's often not that simple. And, and I really also don't want to, you know, give the impression that I feel like there are solutions out there and, and manufacturers are just lazy to implement them. I think that the bigger challenge we're facing now is that we know the problems are there, but I don't think we are able at, as of now to figure out the solutions that everyone is comfortable with, because some of the solution will require us to potentially remove certain features and functionalities that we have now got used to and like. Another point to, to add to this dimension is we're moving away from a society where each one of us has one single device. And I really want to stress this is a very Western phenomenon as well. But basically, PC stands for personal computer. One person, one device, which means I have, you know, the legal ownership, the account ownership, I control this. And now we're putting products on the market into our households, into our employment, where we all collectively use, share, exchange data, etc. And again, we haven't figured out neither the legal dimensions, the technical dimensions of how to deal with this, nor the social etiquette around this either. I urge manufacturers to think about it, but I also feel like they're equally as startled by the challenges that they have opened up basically with these devices. What's probably on a lot of people's minds is given that we don't have the safeguards built into the devices, what can people do to get support or get help when they are subject to tech abuse? And one interesting phenomenon that I've come across recently that I thought would be interesting to discuss is 
the rise of people offering ethical hacking services, basically specifically for survivors of tech abuse and other sorted types of abuse, but specifically tech abuse. And these ethical hackers are basically trying to step in and fill that gap, I suppose, where the tech is being used in the way it's supposed to be used, but by someone malicious. And they're offering to step in and either help with security, recover accounts that have been hijacked, or check devices for malicious hacking. It's difficult to know whether these ethical hacking services are what they say they are. And of course, if they can do all these things to help you, they could, of course, also be used maliciously by people who are looking to perpetrate tech abuse, but don't have the skills to do it themselves. So it's a double-edged sword there, I suppose. And I've noticed them appearing quite a lot on Instagram specifically, but that's just because that's where I first saw it and I started to look for it more. These accounts popping up and specifically targeting people using hashtags around abuse. They target people using those hashtags and offer their services to them. And I guess I just wonder whether we should be using these kinds of services, whether they should be allowed to advertise on social media. I have a lot of questions about them in my mind right now. I'd be very cautious my my response for for anyone who who listens to this and is fearful and is in a situation where they're in a cursive and controlling a- environment and where they start to realize wait a minute actually these patterns we're discussing here i observe them in my relationship whether it's with your partner with your with your your parents perhaps even i i, I would urge people then to perhaps stop look for help at established and i would say credible bodies and organizations and, and I'd rather go through, especially domestic abuse charities who, A, not just have awareness of coercion and control and domestic abuse, but also often have now the understanding around tech as well. And especially with these ethical hackers, many of them do actions that are very heroic. They hack in, into a stockware database by a provider that sells spouseware on on an android app store and while that's cool and great and and you know most recently there was a case where they did that and then deleted the database what they haven't thought of is the consequences of that so how perhaps a perpetrator thinking that it was the victim doing that why they no longer have access and the consequences of this action like leading to actual physical violence or an exacerbation of the abuse etc and again, I think they're then a step removed from the reality of what of the, and the consequences of the, that they create. Whereas with domestic abuse charities, they do a proper risk assessment. They talk to the victim, their situation, their unique individual needs. They think about the safety plans and take much care in not making the situation worse. So if you're a tech pro and listening to this and you're the type of person that offers that, A, just donate to an established domestic abuse charity or stocking charity, or B, reach out. They hopefully vet you properly. And if you're the type of person that actually is committed to doing good, being accountable for your action, doing some training, educating yourself on that area, and then perhaps like provide a bit of technical support, then, you know, you can help in that organization, but in an environment where there's support, not just on a technical level, 
but also on emotional support, legal support, housing support, etc. And I'm saying this because currently I think there's a huge move to basically ask social services, domestic abuse charities, you know, perpetrator programs for, for the people that engage in these services, like who provide that service to now just no longer just be psychology experts, legal experts, housing experts, but now to know tech as well. That's such a powerful kind of call to action. I think just my thoughts about the ethical hacking is whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think we're probably leaning towards something that's not ideal. It's quite illustrative of how desperate people feel and how alone people feel and how marginalized and isolated that that's where they go for support. And that's the support that sounds like it's going to get done what they want. And I think it's kind of a sort of vigilante justice type exercise. And I think if, if nothing else, it just shows how, yeah, how desperate and difficult it is to be in that space and, you know, have, have photographs that you didn't put online, put online by someone else and you desperately want them taken down and nobody else can do that for you. How are you going to deal with that yourself? I think what they're selling is a false sense of security. It's they're really playing with, as you said, all the anxieties and fears that people have, the helplessness. Anyone who listens, I bet you have had a technical problem where you just sat in front of your computer, your laptop, your your smartphone and could just cry because it was not working. And I, again, like coming back to the earlier point, it, in heterosexual relationships, the first call might be your partner, might be your dad or someone. It's just so ingrained in, in our society that there is often not a technical helpline we can call and, and get support with. There's no GP for that. Yes. And thinking more along that line about what support is available and how the internet and technology can help victims of tech abuse. Comic Relief actually did a survey of 92 survivors asking how technology could best help them. The most common responses were being able to ask lawyers questions online without making appointments, offering a way to safely record abuse, making it difficult for an ex-partner to stalk them, and providing online counselling. There are also a growing number of resources available to help survivors of tech abuse. For instance, the charity Refuge have designed a chatbot on their website, which they developed from conducting interviews with survivors of tech abuse, which offers instructional videos and real-time tips on how to secure your devices and ensure your online apps are not accessible to your abuser. Important tips here around securing your online platforms include changing your passwords and usernames, checking the privacy settings on your devices to ensure they're not connected to other devices that you don't know about, and downloading apps that can detect and remove stalkerware, such as Incognito and Certo. If you're unsure of which of the devices in your home are linked to the Internet of Things and therefore able to be accessed by others, you can look this up using Shodan, a website which securely helps you keep track of your devices and monitor your network exposure. We've put links to all the resources I've just mentioned in the show notes below in case you'd like to access them. Leonie, what other guidance do you think it's important to share with people who are currently experiencing tech abuse? That's already a very good list. I would normally start with caution because it depends on a victims and survivors individual situation. And I think it's really important for anyone listening where they are suspecting that they are covertly monitored or where a partner secretly is accessing their emails, etc., that they are considerate that any change, and I'm sure they are aware of that, that any change they do to their system could escalate things. 
And I feel like changing passwords or, or installing these systems really only work if you feel in charge of your account and feel capable of doing so without the consequences of someone else finding out. And so that's why I feel like advice should also be targeted on the different stages of abuse. So, for example, while a person is still living or cohabiting with a partner where they still have physical access to the individual, but also the devices and systems, the advice should be different than when they try to remove themselves from it, such as going for a refuge, going to friends or family to live there for a while. And then the third stage where they try to rebuild their life and live, for example, by themselves in a separate new home and start new devices, new accounts, etc. One thing I've heard about but don't really understand is the fight that's coming out now to combat image-based abuse, which I know is a very big problem. But I know TikTok and Meta have started implementing this thing called hashing technologies that help to remove images that are being shared online. So as far as I understand it, people can report images that they'd like to get hashed and they get like it's a unique code, this hash, basically. And whenever someone tries to share that image online or if the image has already been shared it's flagged, basically. And so this is somehow reported. But it sounds like a good thing to me. Yeah, I don't know if you remember this. I think it must have been two or three years ago, Facebook tried to do this, basically asking if you have images you don't want, well, primarily intimate images that you don't want to have shared, send it to us and we make sure it's not on Facebook anymore. And people were quite in uproar following that suggestion because who says that when I send it to Facebook that it's safe there and whoever, who is on the end of the line and make sure that, you know, whoever handles these is not sharing them, misusing them in other ways. And that's one of the problems with, with this functionality. And again, I, I really want to stress we're trying to solve a societal problem with a technical solution. And again, I, I understand why, why companies are doing this. And I, I partially also agree that we need to find those solutions. But I, I wonder around the implementation and, and to explain a bit more around the hashing dimensions, the idea that like each image you're identifiable, we have facial recognition technology that you could, we could trace of all the images that are, are online and like search for that. But perhaps a really important point to remember is there's a difference between the internet you experience, which probably is behind often certain walls and that might be your google search engine or whatever search engine you're using but also platforms such as you experience it either in in an app or a platform like tiktok facebook twitter etc but that doesn't mean that they are not like if that algorithm is or that hashing functionality is embedded on those platforms that it is that these images are gone because they're stored somewhere else on a server. Now, these servers are often not in Europe or in places where there's e easy law enforcement knocking on someone's door and saying, take that thing down. And so just because we um, provide those functionalities on major platforms, again, doesn't mean necessarily that they're gone from wherever they are stored. Again, it's helping because that's where the majority of people experience the internet. But again, like coming back to false senses of security, etc., it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's gone, perhaps for many people for good. It's gone, but it's not gone. It's still out there somewhere. And uh, who watches the watcher? So important for us to be thinking about.
as we come to the end of this episode, it's time for In Their Own Words, a segment where we ask guests to tell us unprompted about anything relating to this topic that they think is important from their own knowledge, experience or perspective, or just something that they simply want to share with you all. Let's hear what Leonie has to say in their own words. If, if it's okay, I'd love to talk about what actually got me interested, like at all in the intersection of society and tech, because I never, never thought I would ever work on issues around technology, digital devices, systems. And that was actually a professor at a summer school I attended so many years ago. And he did something which I think it's funny because he works on the general data protection regulation. He's a professor at the University of Vienna, Professor Forgo. If he's listening, hello, he runs a good podcast as well. And he tricked us at the summer school. And I wasn't planning on signing up for his course, but we were a large group of people, international people attending the summer school on European law and policy. And he basically started the, we, we were arrived, I think on a weekend, you know, we were all went out in, but that was 2008, the height of Facebook. And we had a Facebook group and whoever run that Facebook group must have, you know, had offer ship uh, around like who could see content, etc. And I remember we were sitting at that big hall and every professor stood up and basically said why, why they're here, what their course will be about and why students should take uh, their course. And he stood up and said, you might not know me, but I know a fair bit about all of you. And then he showed the pictures that we had shared on Facebook, thinking, you know, it was us, but whoever had like invited the profs, the professors that like of this summer school, they were watching the same pictures of us, you know, being at a beer tent and like having a drink, enjoying ourselves, being young. You know, I mean, there were no pictures that were inappropriate, but still it would be the type of pictures I wanted someone who has to assess and and give me grades at the end of the day. And yeah, I, I just remember this being this pivotal moment in my life where I have not had thought about the consequences of sharing things online. And for me, this set the path to where I am now and it took many diversions, but I still think inherently for me, it's about data protection. It's about individuals' ability to consent and be aware and informed about what's happening. And I see this in my work still today. You know, I, I'm not ashamed of what happened, but it was a strong enough moment for me to have this uh, epiphany, so to say. And I hope more people have that, but I hope people don't have it in a hurtful way, but rather, you know, a tiny nudge that makes them more aware of the consequences of using certain features, sharing certain things, the the consequences that digital devices and systems and platforms have for us and, and our future and, and our common well-being. You've been listening to Pulling the Strings. If you'd like further information on anything we've discussed in this episode, or if you have felt affected by anything you've heard, please see our show notes for additional resources. Please do review and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps us to find more listeners and means you'll never miss an episode. 
Thank you to the Violence, Abuse and Mental Health Network for funding this podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. Until next time, take care.